Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 22 of season 7. Two more to go, and that will be the end of season 7. Today is uh, Sunday, January the 30th, 2022, and my name is Rudolf, and I'm talking to you, as always, as your host, from the outskirts of Austria's lovely city and capital, Vienna. It's great to have you here with us today on that episode where my guest uh, will be the great Greg Kaminsky. Greg, who is a good friend of mine. And while I'm talking about Greg, um, I want to tell you something, please. Um, if you're interested in what could happen with Greg and me here on this show, we have a certain special plan for the future. Stay with me for the end at the outro talk and listen to what I have to tell you about that there. Um, I know some of you never listen to that. Actually, you should. And if you don't like music, for example, if you want to jump over certain things, um, I would like to remind you that this podcast has chapter markers. So if you say, you say now, okay, Rudolf, enough talk. I want to go to the interviews right away. Go to it. The chapter marked interview part one and there you are or if you say no i want to listen to the music first go to the music chapters which are always marked if you have the right software to listen to your podcast and while i'm saying that i've now with this show starting with this show added a new chapter mark um, at the beginning of the intro to the interviews at the end of the first music piece so once again you'll find markers at each musical piece at the intro of the interview, at the interview itself, at the second part of the interview, and for the outro talk. So no excuse today not to listen to the outro talk and to listen what I have to announce about Greg and myself. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being either a returning customer or for being a first time here. Great to have you all. And thanks also to all of you who are supporters of this podcast. And guys, once again, we have to do something about that a little bit more. We need a bit more support of you to be able to be sustainable. Um, this podcast is now in its fifth year and, well, some software needs to be replaced. And especially the computer is getting a bit weak lately. So we'll have to do something about that. And please Give me your help for that if you like what we're doing here. It would be lovely to have your support. Great. And, well, how do I do that, you might ask? Well, go to our website. And you should do that in any case because on that website you will find all the all the uh, show notes for all the episodes and all the episodes themselves. You can even download them there. It's a great resource and the podcast. The, the, the website is called thoshermes.com, as always, and you find it T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And there, 
you find the Patreon button and you can become a patron or you can give me a donation, me, us here, me who is doing this show, but of course for us, all of us here who are the listeners and the community of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. So there is a donation button for a one-off donation and there is also that Patreon button which makes you a patron starting at $1 per episode. Would be really nice to have you as a supporter here. And while you are at the website, um, I would love you to leave me a message to tell me what you think about the podcast, if you like it, what you do not like about it. If you have guests, thank you for those of you who have sent me suggestions. I'm sorry if I cannot always fulfill those. I have always kind of a backlist of um, guests already, and um, but I have several times I've already added people in by suggestions of you. So if your wish is not immediately respected, it might come a bit later. So just be patient and sometimes I cannot fulfill the wish for a reason I hope I always give you when I send you an answer email. I normally do that. So if you don't get an answer from me, say within a week or 10 days by email, then something happens to your message and send it again. How do you send me a message? Why? On the website, there is a contact form. On the website, there is also voicemail. You can send me for free, of course. And you can send me email there at info at thoshermes.com. And you can also go on Facebook or Twitter. To be honest, I prefer the communication through email and the message board on the website. Um, not because, uh, well, it's, it's easier for me to retrieve, just like that. I'm not every day on Facebook, to be honest. And you might wait for a bit longer if you do it there. Okay. But um, Facebook is a great resource to know what's going on on the podcast. All the episodes are announced and the release is announced and the links are there. So still, you should go there and have a look, just like Twitter. Great. So some music. We're already talking a bit long here. And talking about messages from you, I'm always asking for musicians among you to send me your music, to contact me and tell me what you are doing. And this week... The music that we hear is again from somebody who has done that and I'm very glad that we are here and we'll be listening to music from our fan and listener Robert Slover. You will find more about him as a musician and what he does on the webpage on the show notes of this episode and we will play three very different tracks by Robert here today. So uh, this first piece we are going to hear, are three different styles really what we are going to hear. The first is, um, I would call it a jazz classical. A jazz classical and the title of the track that we are presenting here today is In the Key of Blue Latin. So Robert Slover, our listener, our friend here, our uh, is our guest here today with his music that he offers to us. Thank you, Robert. And uh, as I just said, we will hear three tracks, but the first that we hear now is called In the Key of Blue Latin. Enjoy.
in the key of blue Latin by our listener Robert Slover, who has offered the three tracks to be played in this show. Thank you, Robert, once again. And uh, you will hear two different styles later on, as always, in the middle of the interview and one immediately after the interview. And that interview today is with my guest, Greg Kaminsky. Once again, um, I have some news for you regarding Greg and myself. So if you're curious, if you want to know, please stay with me after the interview, after the third piece of music. In the outro talk, I will not only let you know who is my guest next week, but um, you will also hear what those news are. Yes, yes, I'm making you curious and that's good. So, who has to introduce Greg Kaminsky? I don't think I have to, but, well, for those of you who really want an introduction, well, Greg, of course, he has made his name at first, becoming the one of the very first podcasters who did an occult podcast. And his occult of personality, which is now more than 12 years running, um, he is, is one of the big classics. And I'm one of those, actually, who started listening to podcasts and with with him not only with occult personality but it was certainly central to my experience in podcasting as it is to many of you out there and at some point i was also greg's co-host when at the beginning when i started my my podcast here and um well, uh, he has been lately my co-host on this show also when we hosted together chuck dunning our common friend and also, he was already guest on this show um, quite a few years back. I think it's four years back that he was here. So Greg is a good old friend, and he has recently released um, his uh, two first books, I may say. The first was a self-published book, but the first released book by a publisher, um, by the beautiful beautiful Anathema Publishings from Montreal is called Celestial Intelligences, Intelligences, Celestial Intelligences. And it's also not only very good with content, but it's a beautiful, beautiful book. By the way, it's made by its illustrations. Illustrations are very special in this book. You'll hear more about that right away in the interview. And uh, as always, Anathema Publishing is doing a great job. And just to, to let you know, of course, Joseph Uccello was the illustrator, the artist who designed the book. As always, I would like to read you a short excerpt from the book uh, we are going to talk about. This is from chapter 7. The chapter's name is Metatron and Azazel. It's what I read is mostly about Metatron. And of course, you'll hear the name of Pico, Pico de Mirandola, uh, once or twice in that excerpt, because... Greg has written the thesis on Pico di Mirandola, and that's, of course, reflected in his big and great knowledge about that personality from the Renaissance time here in Europe, um, and it's his influence on the Kabbalah, on angiology, etc. So let me read you a short excerpt from Metatron and other cell from that chapter 7 of Celestial Intelligences. In the Kabbalistic tradition, the great angels Metatron and Azazel have significant roles. Metatron, among his many titles, is known as the Angel of the Countenance and is often believed to be the angel into whom Enoch was transformed after he ascended to heaven without dying in the Apocryphal Book 3 Enoch. 
Therefore, Metatron is thought to be an exemplar of the potential of humans to rise to the level of angels. Additionally, in Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia's writings, Metatron was equated with human intelligence. And there it becomes clearer how Pico came to associate the cherubim with the intellect and how emulating them before all other orders of angels prepared one for spiritual ascent, like Enoch, who became Metatron. This alone demonstrates a direct line of thought that influenced Pico's statements in the oration. Pico directly mentions Enoch's transformation to Metatron as he discusses emulation of the cherubim. He makes an even more direct connection in the 900 Thesis, one of Pico's five conclusions according to Themistius. And that is in 19.2, I believe that the active intellect that is illuminating only in Themistius is the same as Metatron in the Kabbalah. And Pico reaffirms therefore Abulafia's assertion. When considering Metatron being called agent intellect, the mythopoetic nature of this statement obscures whether this is a simple metaphor or a metaphor demonstrated by an actual being with a name and function. And this goes to the heart of Pico's argument, illustrating that when one approaches the process of divine union, fully accurate factual descriptions become more and more difficult because they require a subject that knows and an object to be known. Well, if you want to know and read further, you have to get that really wonderful book, Celestial Intelligences by Greg Kaminsky. But if you want to know more about Greg Kaminsky and that book and his thought, not only in that book, well, join us now for this interview that is going to start in a few seconds. Um, and uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this really lovely talk. I will, as always, come back to you in about uh, 32 minutes it is this time for a break and in that break we will hear again as usual more music so for the time being now without further ado let's go and meet Greg Kaminsky. Here comes the interview. It is a special moment for me here now on the Thos Hermes podcast because of my guest. Uh, and uh, it's an enormous pleasure uh, to have my not only guest, but friend and brother Greg Kaminsky here on the show tonight. Uh, Greg, hello. Good evening to you over there, over the other side on the Atlantic. Hello, Rudolf. Great to speak with you again. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, people out there, I think they do know that we have a long common story <laughs> that uh, I had the, the chance and the pleasure and, and I learned so much from you when I could be your co-host for some time. And But you have already appeared on this show as well, but it's, well, it's over four years back. I checked that today. It's amazing how time runs and then you were here lately being my co-host again with Chuck Dunning as our common guest and finally finally I have you here again in front of the mic just you to be my guest and it's a great pleasure Greg um yeah it's interesting a, yeah it's interesting ahead. it makes me think about how we go through our lives and even if we're present in the moment for 
all the significant moments and events that uh, there's this sense that we could always appreciate it more than we do. Definitely, definitely, absolutely. And yeah, it makes you think that way. I mean, uh, let's maybe briefly talk about that because you you have your podcast now for 12 years, I think. Yeah, it's, it it must be maybe, like maybe even longer. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, but I think it was about 12 years, if I'm not wrong, that I have been listening to it and you were one of the first I listened to in that field and then then um uh well mine is now approaching its five year <laughs> so it's amazing how time flows and well this this lately and that maybe brings us also to my first question that i have for you greg now about the subject what was the immediate uh, reason why we were meeting here today you recently well it's already now five months back, I think, published a wonderful, wonderful book called Celestial Intelligences. We will go in depth into that here today. Um, but before we talk about the book itself, this is your second published book. And uh, uh, what does it mean to you after those many years of doing studies, of being a practitioner in different fields and having also changed uh, uh, yourself a lot of your approach to the to the occult and uh, and the, the western or and eastern esoteric traditions and um, then being a podcaster having also achieved a, a, a degree uh, at the university what and then now suddenly being a published author um what has that meant to you what has it maybe changed for you even um it's a good question i think let's see i think that until i wrote these books i didn't really have anything substantial to communicate mm-hmm And f while the idea of being an author is attractive, the actual work that is involved kind of wipes away any glamorous illusion about what that means. Um, All of the things I thought would be enjoyable about being a writer are not the things that I really enjoy about being a writer. Um, you know, when I was younger, I thought, well, it would be great to have a written document to point to is like, this is my path, or this is what I believe, or this is the work I've done and be able to point to something and say, this is it. And I did it. And, <laughs> and then to sort of enjoy the fruits of that. And I guess what I've learned is that there really aren't actually any fruits of that other than the accomplishments of learning and writing the book. 
I mean, it's wonderful to talk with people and hear their impressions and their feedback and comments about the book. And I, and I do enjoy that, but that does not, it's not as uh, fulfilling as I had expected it would be. Mm -hmm. And instead I'm left with the knowledge and experience that I gained through the writing process and specific to the topic of the books. And so more than anything else, it just reinforces what I've learned as a matter of writing them. So the main thing I would want to leave people with in regards to what you're asking is to say that being a writer is important because thoughts that are only spoken are only half complete. And in order to complete any thought, you've got to write it out. And so the act of writing is what concretizes the knowledge and experience into something that is accessible and conveyable to another. If, if I may, before we go to the book, can we go a bit deeper into that? Do you know, uh, do you mean by that, uh, by putting it into the written word, this deepens the effect, not only to the reader, but also to yourself as the author? Does it change the way you express things because you have to write them down? Yes, because when you compose writing, you have to clean up all of the artifacts in your thinking that aren't congruent or don't mesh or mm. don't flow. And so the, the, the act of writing or typing or composing, drafting, what have you, is the act of refining and then making knowledge and experience real. So in, in fact, the, the reader wouldn't have anything without that. And the writer definitely has a much more deep understanding of what they're talking about if they've written it out, um, regardless of whether it's correct or you agree with them, their own understanding of it will be deeper. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I, I would agree on that. And I mean, it also gives us a meaning about the written word. And as such, I mean, that's now an old story, especially in the world of the occult, of course, um, the written word has a very special meaning, uh, which is more than just the sense of its of its vowels and and, and consonants, right? Yes. And that's probably only possible in writing. But I now we so. live we live in a society, of course, where the spoken word and even the imaged word, to put it like that, um, has become more and more important as opposed to the written word. How does that, in your opinion, change the approach to wisdom, to knowledge in our society? 
Well, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here when I say that our society seems to focus primarily on the superficial on and, and largely leaves deep, profound questions unexplored or prefers to take some perceived authorities line as truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that writing as an act could necessarily change that on a wide scale, but for an individual, I think that writing and exploring the ideas that you love through writing is really the in my estimation, one of the only ways to get a handle on the things you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. The other would be a more formal sort of esoteric contemplation. But, but that's less accessible and more difficult for most people than the act of writing is. And I think you know, for the most part, we're witnessing a time where reading is on the decline, books in a paper form are in decline, and people's attention span is certainly in decline. Mm-hmm. None of that really bodes well for the future, I have to say. And... Um, and to me, the idea that somehow this time that we're in is a progression from the past seems outrageous and absurd. But if your measure is only technology, then maybe, maybe. I, yeah. don't, know. I don't know if that really answered your question, Rudolph. I think I kind of went off on a huge digression. Uh, no, 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 not at all. I think it belongs to that very question. And it's again a matter of well matter and spirit right uh, and the technology the expression by image etc is a very materializing uh, um, act and writing and reading are more spiritual acts than than the other way and maybe that that's that's the common the common ground for all that isn't it yes mm. Um, last question about the author, Greg Kaminsky, you know, and you know, and, and many people out there listening to us know that I come from the stage world, performing arts world. And when we perform a role there, or when we hold even a speech or, or pronounce words there, um, when you're finished, especially if it were not your own words, then you often have the feeling, did I do well? Did I put the right meaning into what I was just saying. Is that also true for the author when you have finished a work like that, that we are going to talk about here today? Is it okay, now that's done, I have to let it go, but I would immediately want to restart and to do it better? Or is it a closed chapter for you and you go on to something else? I don't know. I mean, for me, I spent enough time researching and writing the book that I don't feel the need to revise it or say anything differently than Mm -hmm. I 
said it. Hmm. I imagine that any book you write could be continuously revised as you learn and experience more, but the act of writing is not a continuous process. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. And so once the end comes, that's it. You, it's been completed. And just like everything in the world, it will not be perfect. It will have mistakes. And that's the way the world is. So, And you have to let go from it and go to something else, right? Well, you don't have to, but it, I mean, it would definitely be more beneficial to understand that perfection as we conceive of it is not an actual thing. And, and no, I mean, nothing is permanent anyway. So it, why does it have to be exactly the way I want it in every moment? Like it just, it's a losing, losing battle. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have to warn you listeners out there. That's always like that with Greg and me. When we start into a topic, we get into philosophy right away. Right and, away. Um, so um, this will continue like that during the next 45 <laughs> minutes. I'm sure. I'm sure. So I have that beautiful, beautiful book here in hands. And again, it's called Celestial Intelligences. It was published by Anasima Publishing, also somebody not unknown here on this podcast and on your podcast, of course, as well, Greg. Um, and what is always the case with the books that we get from Anasima Publishing, they are always really objects. They are beautiful objects. But this one here is a very, very particular object. We're going to talk content in a moment, Greg, but um, what really hits the eye when you open it is this beautiful setting, the type setting, the, but of course the drawings and the I wouldn't even like to call them illustrations. It's it's more than that. It's it's part of a, as we say, Gesamtkunstwerk. There's no translation to that in English, but um, uh, a complete artwork. Um, so congratulations to that, uh, Greg, because I'm sure this has not happened without you being active in researching and and producing together with the artist those 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 drawings. So. Tell us a bit about that process and how you feel about that and what made you go in that direction. So there was a couple things going on there. Um, number one, Joseph Uccello did the layout, the fonts, the all the artwork for the book. Um, I've known Joseph for more than a few years now. Um, he used to live very close to me in Boston, and we would occasionally spend uh, evenings talking um, quite a bit. And I became familiar with his work, his process, what inspires him, and as soon as I spoke to Gabriel at Anathema and he said that Joseph might be available, I said, we have to get Joseph because I know Joseph. I love Joseph. Joseph's work is unique. He has a point of view. He has a vision. 
and he's innovative when it comes to his artwork. And I really appreciate that about him. And so because of my great appreciation for him and what he does, that was really like, as soon as that became a possibility, that was it. And really, uh, he, Joseph and I had one long conversation about the book and then he went off and did everything. Okay. And he did it perfectly as I knew he would. And there was never really any back and forth or, asking for him to fix or change anything because it's, I, I know how he works. And as soon as I saw it, I knew it was perfect. So he is incredibly talented, gifted artist, typesetter, book designer. And, um, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to work with him in this capacity. And, I, and I'm thankful to Gabriel for making that happen. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you can be because it's really beautiful, but it's amazing that it was kind of in one, in one stroke that you two brought that together that way. And of course, it's, yeah, well, we had spent so much time in, mm. in prior talking and getting to know one another that this just flowed effortlessly from that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I can't speak for him. From my end, it was effortless. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he says the, said, uh, the same about your writing. It was for him effortless to read what you wrote, but maybe it was more of work for you to write what you wrote, it, wasn't it? Perhaps, yeah. 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 Um, well, which brings us finally, finally to the subject of this book. And of course, at the center of the book, there is a personality uh, from the 15th century that you have, one might almost say by now, become very familiar as part of your family. <laughs> Pico, right. Pico, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, um, uh, you have been working with and about him for quite some time. So what was the initial attraction of that personality for you? What brought the two of you together? Yeah, that's a kind of an interesting roundabout story, but that's why we're here. So take your time. Yeah. Let's see. Um, I was pursuing my master's degree at Harvard. That started back in 2000. 10, I think something like mm. that. Anyway. So at the end of the program, you have to write a thesis and throughout my time, they kept the professors kept kind of hammering home. You know, this thesis is the capstone of your degree. It's really crucial that you not wait until the end, until you start working on it. You need to pick a topic that you love because you're going to be spending 18 months intimately <laughs> reading and writing about it to the exclusion of almost everything else. <laughs> and so... I started thinking about this. I was like, okay, what, what topic do I really want to research and explore that's not only interesting to me, but worthwhile to people who might read this. 
And I kept coming back to this sort of central question that really has intrigued me since I first started looking at any occult material. And that is how does Western esotericism come to be dominated by Jewish Kabbalah as its Mm -hmm. primary esoteric system? It made no sense at all to me because growing up Jewish, I was very familiar with the fact that especially during medieval times in the Renaissance, the Jews were not certainly not accepted in society, Hmm. certainly not liked, certainly not admired. So why in the world would they take their esoteric system and use it for themselves? Just, it's not like you could make Kabbalism somehow like not Jewish. Like you can't, you can't get the Hebrew language, the, <laughs> I, like the whole history of it. It's just of course inextricable. So it never really made any sense to me. And I, that's really what I wanted to explore. So I wrote a big proposal on doing this research project and my thesis advisor, he's like the, f- the first that's the first gate you have to get through. And so he accepted it. And then he said, okay, now we have to find you some professor who will actually you know, work with you on this paper. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I know who I want to work with. And that was Dr. Kimberly Patton. She's the head of the comparative religion at Harvard Divinity School. And I'd taken a few classes with her in the past, and I knew how amazing she was as a scholar and a person. So I met with Dr. Patton, and she read over my proposal. And right away, she said, um, I'm, I'm not going to agree to work with you on this. And I said, oh, why is that? And she said, your topic is huge. She said, there's no way you can explore this in 200 pages, let alone a thousand. Like you're talking about books and books of material here. And I said, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a danger. And she said, the only way I'd be willing to work with you. She's like, I have two conditions. One. You have to narrow your focus. Like a lot, she said, you're, you've, you've, you've drawn a circle around like Judaism and Christianity, like, and there's your, your foot, like that's too big. Mm. So she said, why don't you just focus on something much smaller? And then if it's too small, you can kind of gradually widen the circle instead of starting out huge and not knowing where to go, start small and then just expand outward. I said, well, that makes sense. And then she said, the other condition is the the paper has to be about angels. Okay. And this is because the first class I took with her was about angels, and that is her one of her primary areas of study. 
And then because she felt like looking at this topic, Kabbalism, like she didn't know anything about that. So she's like, I can't really help you with that. Like, but if you write about angels, I know about that. I can help you with that. I said, okay. And then I said, well, what about this guy, Pico? He wrote about angels and he also is the main person behind this movement of the Kabbalah from Judaism to Christianity. And she said, well, if you wrote about angels and he's the main guy, well, that's great. She said, does he have a single piece of writing we could focus on to begin? I said, oh yeah, the oration. It's perfect. It's well known. It's well written. It's very clear. And she's like, great. So there we go. She's like, write a new proposal on that and we'll go from there. So that's what I did. I wrote a new proposal, went through the process again she accepted it. And then I was off to the races. Um, so I started writing and researching, but the, in the midst of doing that, I had like a full blown Lyme disease, Hmm. uh, outbreak and kind of interrupted my progress for a few months. That was about the time when we first met. Well, if I say in person, I mean, of course, virtually we never met in person, but that was about the time when we got together, right? Yeah, that was right right after that was when we got together. Mm-hmm. And I had to, then I had to get uh, all kinds of formal extensions on my due date because I was sick and had missed a bunch of time. Mm. So I did that and eventually wrote the book and it was a struggle because I was really physically unwell for like the first two thirds of that process. Mm. The final third, I started coming out of it, um, but it was, it was not good. Um, but I think one of the main things I learned do, doing that was that uh, I had always assumed that knowledge leads to wisdom and that the more experience one has and the more knowledge one has, the more wisdom one would have. But I came to understand partly through researching and writing this book, that that is not really true at all. It's possible that it can be, but what you have to do is you have to approach the acquisition of knowledge as a holy, sacred endeavor and one which is sort of time-bound, right? Because at some point, you realize that acquiring more knowledge is not actually gaining wisdom at all. In fact, what, because wisdom is the apperception of reality as a wholeness mm-hmm. and knowledge is the acquisition of ever more discrete bits of data and information there's no end to that acquisition and it wouldn't, it would never actually lead you to wisdom because the apperception of reality as wholeness requires you not 
break down information into ever smaller bits to be digested. It requires that you see it all as a single unity, which means as a matter of course, a sort of a unlearning and unknowing and irrealization of conceptuality and thingness altogether. Mm-hmm. And so it's really a movement in, in the opposite direction, if directions were a thing, <laughs> but it, it's going in a, a different vectoral direction. It's going towards wholeness and knowledge and experience are going only towards more knowledge and experience. And here we are again with finding the right words to describe a process which can be even orally very hard. I mean, you do it wonderfully, but it is very difficult to describe what you just said in with words. I remember Rudolf Steiner, who you know I I'm quite uh, I'm quite fond of and also know a bit about him that he said you know when I have a vision and I see a color I can't describe it because that color doesn't exist in our words but I have to take the words that is closest to that I say blue it's not blue but it's it, the closest I can find is blue that's a bit the same what you're we're just doing now isn't it yeah because language is rooted in duality And yes. what I, we're trying to describe is non-dual. So yeah. Yeah. you have to kind of bend, shape, twist, mangle the language to try to convey the meaning. And it still fails. It still fails. I, my teacher always talks about uh, Meher Baba, who was a great realized teacher. And he said something along the lines of, If I speak in my language, there's, you won't understand. And if I speak it in your language, there's really nothing worth saying. So he just didn't talk <laughs> for years. It might be a good solution for some. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that was a joke. Um, but I, I, uh, I see what you mean. And it's a very wise A very wise word, actually, what he, what he says there and what he did. Mm. Yeah, because truth, it, it, it fundamentally, truth cannot be articulated in language. And any, any expression of language is not ultimate truth. Okay, now it is time for a break, as I had announced previously. And we are going to hear more music, after which we will return to our fascinating talk with Greg Kaminsky for another 32 minutes. So we really broke exactly in the middle this time, didn't we do well? Okay, so guys, I promised you some different style of music for that second track that Robert Slover gave us, and indeed... Track two and track three, both of them are uh, very different in style. This is called, well, I would call it a trip hop. That's actually how Robert calls it. The track that we're going to hear now in the break is called Evaporate Sublime. It's more psychedelic. It's really interesting. And um, I like it when a musician has 
very different styles to offer. So after that jazzy thing in the beginning, it's now psychedelic music, trip-hop. Trip-hop, I like that expression. I didn't know it before. And it will be called Evaporate Sublime. After which we'll return to Greg Kaminsky and continue our talk. And at the end, at the end of the talk, there is the third track we're going to hear um, by Robert Slover. And this one is world music, pure world music, I think, with all kinds of different instruments. It is called The Silk Road, a very fitting title. And in The Silk Road, we hear instruments like Duyek, uh, uh, Egyptian Oud, or um, Bansuri from India, Dulcimer. So all kinds of uh, sounds that we are no longer used to in our times and in the Western world, which I'm afraid most of our listeners are listening from um, talking about which would be nice to hear from those of you who are in other countries than this clearly Western tradition world. So let me know when you're listening from far away. Um, it's always exciting to hear. We have listeners when I watch where those podcasts are being downloaded really from all over the world, but not quite all over the world. So. If you are in a faraway country where we don't expect to be present, let me know. Okay, so, but uh, now, quickly, let's listen to Evaporate Sublime, after which we return to Greg Kaminsky and the interview. And after the interview, it'll be The Silk Road, Evaporate Sublime by Robert Slover. Thank you. 
let's go back to Pico. So Pico, there he was with you. And um, um, I also remember your, you, I was happy enough to read your paper on on Pico and on, on, I think it was your, your thesis paper actually that you gave to me to read at some point when it was finished. Uh, and it was already then a fascinating part, but this book now to go to celestial intelligence, of course, it goes much further than that. I think it would be fair to say, um, but correct me if you see that differently, that the first part of that book that we hold in hands here, um, maybe the first two chapters or so, um, they are very closely based to your research on on, on Pico and, and uh, bring up the topic in a very, I wouldn't say academic way, but close to it. It is, it is uh, not a I narrative, mean, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of knowledge there, right? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely describe it as academic. Yeah, it, would you? I mean, okay. it, it is an academic thesis. It was written for that audience originally. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it's a bit dry and trying to give you all the, the data there that's relevant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, but somehow what, um, what I find is, well, you say it's dry. I, I don't find it dry maybe because I like that kind of stuff, but um, uh, yes, it becomes different uh, from chapter three onwards. That is true, but uh, it is, it is very interesting because you have to lay a foundation in order to understand what follows, of course. Mm -hmm. But um of course, Pico has become lately a bit more popular in in the world of geocardal. Let's put it that way. But I think when you started out um, those twelve years back now, almost uh, this was not yet the case, right? No, I mean my recollection is that um, Pico was seemed like more or less a footnote. Mm -hmm. And you would hear his name mentioned sort of after Ficino as exactly. sort of like one of these figureheads who sort of midwifed the tradition from ancient times into modern times. Exactly. And I even think Francis, Bruno was even Bruno was always mentioned more than, than yes, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that makes sense based on the history and the sort of checkered past of Pico and his legacy and his heirs. It definitely makes sense. And it, it also makes sense because what Pico was talking about is not easily accessible to occultists. Mm. He, he doesn't provide you a coherent system of magic or... Yeah, divination. What he's providing you with is a spiritual path and the very high overview methods um, in a in a sort of a you know five thousand foot view, mm -hmm. without actually describing sort of day to day how one does it. And it's 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 pure mysticism. And it's a path of union with the divine. And so it's very much not appealing to most people because yeah. I think most people who are interested in esotericism or the occult, they're curious. 
they, and if they're authentically practicing it, then that generally, you know, they want to improve their circumstances and acquire power. And yeah. Pico's path is about none of those things. That is true. Yeah. So I feel like it, it makes sense that he was not really considered that well. But I think lately you're right between my book, the work of the modern hermeticist, yeah, Dan Attrell, I believe, exactly. and people like Ted Hand and others yeah. who have yeah. interests in Pico that... His work is seeing a little bit more light yes. <laughs> these days. <laughs> more light is a nice expression for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, but you gave the answer to what was my follow-up question. Why do you think that that is, is the case? But I think it's, you made it already clear with what you just said. Uh, so my next my next question goes a little bit deeper than into the book and from chapter three onwards we were talking you were just mentioning angels and of course it's celestial intelligence is is the is the title of the book um uh, i would like to ask you what or how would you hmm, maybe if you can how would you define angels because um that's also one of those many terms in occultism where you read all kinds of things goes from the catholics perception of of angels down to angels and demons being the same well wouldn't even like to say down from to uh, uh, angels and demons being the same just in a different expression or a different point of angle um what is in your personal view and if that differs from the view of Pico and the book, what are angels? So as we understand it, angels are spiritual beings that exist in some way that's closer to the divine than human beings. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's a physical closeness, more of a metaphysical closeness. Um, angels are thought to have a single purpose. They're single pointed and they are responsible for various functions within reality, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history of interaction with and looking to angels for help, guidance. Um, it's, I guess what, what I would say is that we cannot contact the divine directly at least most of us and feel that we are that our message is reaching its destination but if we have a hierarchy of beings like a ladder we can approach a lower level with our concerns and maybe get them addressed 
Um, and so this is kind of the idea with the hierarchy of angels. It, it provides access to the divine for human beings who, mm-hmm. because of the way we are and the way we act, are simply not that not close enough to the divine to know how to ask or receive help most of the time. And so angels fulfill that function as well. You just mentioned, and you also do, of course, in the chapter in the book mentioned Jacob's ladder, right? Which by tradition, we speak there about seven, about seven levels. um, Then, of course, there is also the Kabbalistic system with the four levels where at least some interpretations say that uh, beyond the human level at the bottom, there is first the angelic level. And then in the third level before it comes to the fourth level of divinity, we have the archangels, right? And you also mentioned, you mentioned, of course, also that in, in, in your book partly. Um, how do those, if you superpose those two systems, this basically three or fourfold uh, um, with the sevenfold, how does that work out? Well, I don't, uh, to me, I think that's sort of a, like a detail that for Pico is completely irrelevant. Okay. Like for him, he sees a ladder and the function of a ladder is to allow one to go from the lower to the higher because one can't just leap. So it's a series of progressing steps or stages by which one can go from human to divine. Mm -hmm. So the function is to Pico, the important aspect here, as opposed to the detailed schematics of the ladder or the tree or how the two might fit or how they might be the same. Mm Because in in Pico's writing, the implication is essentially that the tree of life is Jacob's ladder, that Jacob's ladder is the tree of life. The two are not separate or nor different. But he never spends time describing individual spherot or paths or steps on the ladder. What he's busy describing is hierarchies of angels Mm. and their function. And for Mm. him, it's not so important that you know the map of the ladder. What's important is, you know, the function of the angelic order. Right. And how one proceeds through that emulation in order to attain divine union. So for mm-hmm. you have to understand in mysticism is much more of an art than a science. So we think of occultism, we might think of it as a science where we've got mm-hmm. tables of correspondences, specific colors, materials, implements, a ritual that you know enacts all of these aspects in a formal way and and we're concerned with the form and the structure and making sure each detail is correct yeah that's more like a science so when what pico is talking about is like an art 
where one is much more concerned with feeling states and inspiration and intuition than one is with, you know, did I put the implement in the right spot on the altar right. or do I have the right, right color? Like none of that is yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, which of course is a, a big, we're now we're really going off track if I pursue on that, but just to mention it, of course, even within occultism and magic, this is a big discussion. Uh, is it really so important that the one has the right color is not the intention behind it much more important than the bit. That's what you're yeah. saying here. And right? people are, are, people are different too. So some people, some people might yeah. have to do it one way mm. and some people have to do it another way. And, and some mm. people, I think, kind of combine these approaches, you know, so they're partly concerned with the details and partly concerned with what's arising for them in the moment. Um, but with Pico, he's, it's purely art and mysticism and there's really no concern with you know, speaking the right words or, you know, having the right altar set up. Like for all I know, he didn't even have any of that stuff. You know, yeah. he's simply approaching this as what do I need to do in order to unite with the divine? And those things are not different than you know, what we do in everyday life necessarily. It's just the view and the approach is radically different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to underline what you just said, just to repeat it, because I think it's so important. You said it's, it depends also on the person, not just on the act and of what you're doing, but who is doing it and maybe even where and at what time uh, in your life or uh, what time in history you're doing things. Those yeah. things change. They are not fixed. And, and um Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Human beings are not static. We are yes. process structure. We're not static entities. Exactly. Human beings and even their environment the same, at the same time. Yes. In absolutely. fact, on, depending on your view, those are not different. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, how did Pico if he did, how did he make those experiences? Do we know that? Do we know um, how his how he lived his personally his mysticism? The, does he describe that? Does he no. give an account of experience? Not at all. So how does he How does he come to the result? Well, I don't. I don't know that he necessarily did come to the result. It's just a. It's sort of inferred from reading what he's saying. Like, like I would guess that he'd had tastes of gnosis, but to, I don't think that he, you know, was sort of, you know, stably in that. And and this is a really this is a tricky point here. Um, let me see. How do I say this? In the West, the idea we have of what enlightenment is, is not the same as it is in Eastern esoteric traditions. Mm -hmm. For example, in the West, like we would think of 
someone like Plotinus as enlightened, right? Plotinus, by his own writings, had this sort of tongue-tip taste of Gnosis three or four times in his life, period. That's Mm -hmm. it. He was not an enlightened being. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean he couldn't appreciate and communicate the nature of those tastes in his writing and teaching. He could, obviously. Yeah. So the path that I practice in Vajrayana, there are specific moments during the practice whereby one is goes so deeply into the practice that like like I'm no longer there in the same sense of mentation. That's a very early rudimentary stage in the path. Mm-hmm. It's right after the big preliminary practices. Yeah. So what we take as enlightenment in the West is generally a very early stage of practice in other esoteric traditions Mm -hmm. and what those traditions consider enlightenment is so far off the charts for what we think of it. There's no comparison. So I think Pico by Western standards, we could call him enlightened and by the standards of say like Vajrayana or Tantra would say, no, he was not enlightened. Absolutely mm. not. Right. Uh, that's important. It doesn't mean that his writing is not valuable, though. It clearly is. He had something to say, and his work clearly produced results for him simply through reading what he's saying. It's, that's much as clear. But I, I'm fairly certain also that the way, you know, his life and, you know, is evidence that he was not like what, what I would call fully enlightened. No. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, you were either reading my mind or it's just because we know each other a bit, uh, but <laughs> I, I was going to ask you that um, uh, in that direction because um, since you have started working on Pico many years back and this book, which has appeared uh, a few months ago, of course, in your personal uh, practice, and I think I may say as much because you have talked about it openly, so I don't think it's a secret, has changed a lot, right? Um, yeah. And as you just mentioned, has also changed in a direction which goes far into other you, uh, East, Eastern traditions, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, how has have those things influenced each other? I mean, did uh, I, I'm sure that your view and Pico, you just mentioned part of that, has changed because of your personal change, um, but has also that continuous work on him um, worked in the direction that you changed? 
I think it did. Yeah. In what I mean, way? I think once I finished working on that book that there was no way to sort of continue, you know, practicing, you know, whatever sort of cobbled together path that I had figured out. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I just, I could see, you know, based on my age and the amount of years that I've been doing it, like it wasn't, it wasn't really going anywhere. Like I, I was learning things. I was having experiences. It's the same thing I talked about in the beginning. It, and I, I, I mm-hmm. quickly came to see that, that the, you know, this knowledge and experience was only going to lead to more knowledge and experience. And if I was actually interested in gnosis, which seemed to be this in answer to the problem of me, then I had to do something different mm-hmm. because I wasn't going to be able to find gnosis in occultism. Yeah. And so I, I realized that I, I could either accept that and just kind of muddle through where I could make a much more significant change. And that's when I met my teacher. And I think that really had the impact of making it clear because he was able to like explain all these things in a way I could understand and point out that you know, you have a choice. You can do what you've been doing and continue to get no results. Or you can change, do something else and see if that works. So I tried that and it did work and it did produce results. And it was fairly quickly convincing to me that my occult practices were interesting enjoyable sometimes enriching but mostly they were just leading me to you know just to more of the same like nothing was really mm-hmm. changing it was mm-hmm. just becoming kind of ossified in my practice in my beliefs in my whole way of being and for you know someone approaching middle age that that's not a good thing so it's just really necessary to to really honor and and modify my life mm-hmm. to to sort of go in that direction. I mean, when you discover something that's true, if you don't treat it as true, like what have you done? Yeah, sure. 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 Of course. So I, I didn't, I, I felt like I didn't have a choice in that moment. I was like, okay, this is true. And if I don't honor that and follow it, then what am I doing? Yeah. Because I've always said, you know, I'm on a path to discover the truth. But when the truth isn't what you want it to be, like, what do you do then? 
And that's what I was <laughs> confronted with. And that's what I continue to be confronted with now because reality is not logical, rational, and it's not here to make us feel good about ourselves. And yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing. If you, if you set out to discover truth, you have to be prepared for truth to not be what you want. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. That starts very early in life and you realize that, but in the philosophical way, it's even more true. Of course. Yeah, yeah. it is. And then, and then I discovered, you know, almost any time I look deeply into anything, it turns out to be far different than what I thought and what I'd been told. Mm. And that that's mm -hmm. across the board. There hasn't been a single thing yet that I've looked into deeply where I've said, Oh, that's exactly the way I thought it was. Nope. It's always, <laughs> I had no idea that's how it really was. And that doesn't even make any sense. And how's yeah. that, how, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? Got you. Yeah. 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 You were speaking about personal experiences just before. Um, do you, I mean, that even every meaning everybody perceives certain things in a different way at this different time and so on. Do you think your experience that you made with the Western path um, is a universal, um, something universal that would happen to everyone? Or is that also something that is very personal? to you and other people who have seen it like that? Well, I think my experience is specific to me. I don't expect that anyone else would have that experience or reach mm. those conclusions. But at the same time, I would say there are certain truths that I discovered about Western occultism that I think are true for everyone, regardless of whether they recognize it or not. Mm. And I think that's, you know, number one, Western esotericism is essentially syncretic. Yeah. Meaning they take parts of other traditions and put them together. That's not bad. I, I don't think it's bad. I think that yeah, yeah, I understand. all religions yeah. are to some degree or another. Um, and I think the other main truth is that there are no, there's no gnosis in Western occultism. Mm -hmm. How would you define gnosis? I wanted to ask you that before because gnosis is one of those words that have about 275 definitions. Yeah. Uh, so how would me, you focus in? I mean, for me, gnosis, enlightenment, illumination, self-realization are all synonymous. And like I think I said at the beginning, it's an apperception of this single nature of reality, of a wholeness. But that that implies that there's no subject nor object. There's no thingness at all. There's no separation. There's no time nor space. Mm -hmm. And the only thing we can say for sure is perception seems to be happening, but we know not to who or what. Yeah. Because there are no who's or what's. Yeah. 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 So to, to living in as and of that is gnosis. Mm -hmm. And so if you think you have it, you 
chances are you are lying to yourself or have been deceived somehow because uh, and it's an easy way to know, you know, do you suffer in any way, shape or form? And, and you could make it even simpler than that. Do you see yourself as a subject in a world of objects? If you do, then there's no gnosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to have moments of it and then they go away and then you're yourself again. Yep. Yeah. And most of us have had experiences of those moments. And the realized being lives as that all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Gnosis is. Thank you. Lots to think about, Greg, but uh, that's fascinating. I think people will rewind several times and listen to what you just said several times. Uh, that's really, really fascinating. I hope so, because it's yes. not actually, it's really not understood unless you have been around a, a Gnostic realizer mm. and talk with them and spend years around them to see exactly what is going on. And even then it's very mysterious. Yeah. Well, that's mysticism as it says, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Greg, we're coming towards the end of our talk, unfortunately, but before I let you go, as always, I ask my guests, um, um, what are your next plans? What's, what are you up to? I mean, of course, maybe specifically if you have plans and, another book on a new book or um, other plans that you would like to talk to us about, which, which, which could be interesting for our audience. Thank you, Rudolf. Um, well, one thing I want to mention is um, I have a new co-host for a cult of personality podcast named Billy Hepper. Right. And so we were just getting going and we've started a meditations on the tarot study circle at our membership site, chamberofreflection.com. And so anyone who's a member is free to join our monthly meetings where we review a chapter from the book and discuss it, do a meditation. And then the recordings of those meetings are always uploaded to the website so anyone can listen to them at their leisure. So we're really excited about the meditations on the tarot study circle. I've been wanting to go through that book again for years now, and I'm, I'm glad mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to do that with some like-minded people. So yeah. that's really exciting. And we're, we're really, really excited about it. And we've just, we just had our uh, meeting about the first chapter, the magician, and we'll be meeting this month. Uh, at the end of the month to go over the high priestess. So we're right. super excited about that. Right. Well, I saw that. And uh, unfortunately for me, it's out of time because it would be in the middle of the night. But, yes. but um, you know that our audience here is, I think, 85% American as well. So I oh, think nice. there will be lots of people who, who hear you and who might be wanting to join that day. Now, having heard Greg, of course, everybody knows Greg anyway, but you should really join because it can only be uh, a big, a big, big uh, improvement for yourself to, 
talk through that with him and his friends. And also, as you mentioned, your new course, congratulations to that. And I listened to your first episode and thanks to the nice things you said about me there, Greg. Uh, oh, of course, very, very kind, very kind. Yeah, sure. But still have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, lovely. Well, Greg, once again, thank you so much. Um, it was great to have you. Um, and, uh, Good luck for all your ventures and your and your doings there, and also to your family. And um, well, let's keep in touch as always. And uh, uh, I hope we have the opportunity to meet again here on on this podcast. And uh, uh, all the best to you in the meantime. Thank you so much, Rudolf. It's really great to speak with you again, as always. And I wish you likewise all the best to you and your family and friends and. Yes, I do hope we can we can do this again more Thank you. in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. And for now, have a good rest of the day. You as well. Thank you.
The Silk Road by Robert Slover, who offered us three tracks from his music here today. Three very different tracks, one jazzy, one world music, and in the middle we heard psychedelic music all by Robert Slover. What a multi-talent. Thank you, Robert, once again. And if you want to know more about him, hear more of his music, go to the show notes. You'll find all the necessary links there. Righto, so this was the interview with Greg Kaminsky. Thanks so much, Greg, for an interesting talk. And as you could tell, and I think we even mentioned that during the interview, we are very used to talk uh, and uh, often talk also like just like that, um, just to exchange about our ideas, about the news of the world and all kinds of things. And sometimes we have a beer with that, sometimes we have a coffee with that. And we thought, well, hey, um, as it happened in this show, when we drift off and it becomes really interesting for both of us, we think it could be could be interesting for some of you. Um, we have together quite a large audience base from the occult world. And um, so we thought we'd give it a try from time to time. We don't exactly know yet when we'll start, maybe in a couple of months or so. I guess it'll be after Easter. We'll start once a month. A uh, little extra show which will be broadcast on both Occult of Personality and the Thoughts broadcast as extra episodes, not instead of the Sunday episodes here, but some between um, which we call Greg and Rudolf are having coffee. And we'll just choose a subject and we'll talk about it for some time and discuss and our opinions, our ideas, and we'll see where that will carry us. And, well, we just hope that some of you, and many of you, hopefully, will enjoy that. So, um, we'll give it a try. We'll let you know more in detail when that will happen, what exactly it will be, how you can listen. It'll be on our usual Occult of Personality and Thought Service channels, so no worries. You'll be able to find it, and that will be Greg and Rudolf Have Coffee, um, starting probably in April. Um, and uh, once a month to have a little philosophical talk about subjects, occult and others. I hope you like the idea just as much as we do. Okay, well, that is the announcement and that is the end of this episode. And thank you for listening. But hey, no, 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 I know you want to know who is going to be here with me next week yes and rightly so and um, well next week there's somebody who i have already been interviewing twice as co-host of greg actually um on the cult of personality he appeared already twice and he has written a new book peter mark adams and if the two late last books that he wrote were more about hermetic subjects um, this time it's about healing the power of the healing field is a brand new book by peter mark adams and we are going to talk about him about his background and um, why he wrote that book very different from the two previous ones and i can tell you the book is fascinating i really loved what he has to say there and um, it's it's going to be very hermetically influenced in a very practical field so I hope you'll enjoy my talk with Peter Mark Adams next week. And, um, well, now that's really the end of this week's show. Thank you for listening. I hope you will have a good week in front of you and ahead of you and that uh, 
you are safe and healthy, as healthy as possible. And uh, that I will hear you and see you all next week again. And until then, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.